0: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking a film star noted for his fantasy roles how to talk about dementia in real life and on screen. The Economist in August wrote about the rising prevalence of dementia as a global emergency. Well, Vigo Mortensen has made a film based on his own experience of the illness in his family. Best known for playing Aragorn, the exiled king, in Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings trilogy, Mortensen has also worked with world-class filmmakers, including David Cronenberg, Ridley Scott and Gus Van Sant in a variety of roles. Now his new film, Falling, which he wrote, directed, produced and scored, also stars him as a son struggling to care for his difficult ageing father.
1: I know what you're trying to do. Just because you hate your family and our home, doesn't mean I have to. Jesus Christ. What? (sighs) Nothing.
0: Mortensen also cared for his parents when they suffered with dementia and it led him to make the film.
1: And My experience with it is, it is us. It is we who are confused, not that person. So you have to ask yourself then, why do I have this instinct to correct? Am I really doing it to help them? Or is it because I want them the way they were before?
0: Falling will be released on the 4th of December into cinemas if you're lucky enough to live somewhere where cinemas are open. And there'll also be virtual screenings through modernfilms.com for those who don't. We asked Mortensen as he releases an independent film during a pandemic, Will streaming companies benefit by hoovering up all the talent? And we talk about Woody Allen, a now controversial figure, and someone he worked with early in his career. Viggo Mortensen, welcome to The Economist Asks.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be with you.
0: Your film Falling is your... Directorial debut. You were also a producer on it. I'm interested in why you decided to go the independent route with this film and not use a streaming service to help finance it, like an Amazon or a Netflix.
1: Um, well, I always wanted to make this movie as a movie that would be seen in cinemas. That was the goal. And I have succeeded in finding distributors all over the world to do just that even though we're in the middle of a pandemic and that's increasingly difficult to find cinemas that are open and so forth. But, you know, little by little, we are succeeding. We will have to, in Great Britain as well, some other places do a combination. They will be seen in cinemas, uh, it looks like. We'll also be seen streaming, I think, services through certain cinemas where you buy a movie ticket and then you get to watch it. You have a personal link to the movie. I would rather people see it in, in cinemas just because we work really hard on the sound mix and it's a different experience and the image, you know.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I must say I did, I did think that as I, I watched it, turned the lights out in the kitchen last night and tried my best. But I know that it, one of your producers on the film, uh, Daniel Beckerman, has, has spoken about the value of artist-driven indie films during the rise of streaming services and that feeling that films can become otherwise a bit monolithic. Is that something that you also worry about?
1: Uh, I suppose that's true. I hadn't really thought about that that much. I just personally like going going to the movie house and watching. I like that, the ritual aspect of it. The unknown, you know, you go in, the lights go down. And all of you are hoping to be transported in a way. There's something mysterious about it. Whether you do or do not in the first 10 or 15 minutes, find yourself attracted enough by what you're receiving, hearing and seeing, feeling that you, without even thinking about it, begin to participate in the storytelling as a spectator. That's how I like to see movies. I don't like it when directors explain everything to me, or when you speak about monolithic, there are certain formulaic ways of, you know, types of storytelling that are popular uh, these days, which which is understandable, the more money that's, at stake, the more that they want a safe investment. Let's do something that's worked before. And so I I basically made the kind of movie I would like to go see, hoping that others would feel similarly about the story as I did.
0: Definitely, we'll come back to talk to you more about the story and what happens in the story in in just a moment. But it sounds to me like you're, you're primarily about trying to make that cinema experience as difficult as that is in the... Pandemic. A lot of our audience, of course, will know you from Lord of the Rings. And if that were made now, I think the first film was two thousand and one. Do you think it would be a, a film or a TV? Would or the desire for a streaming version would be very strong? Would we still make those big epic sequences of films that filled our Sunday afternoons or Saturday evenings?
1: Um, it's hard to say because so I mean, what Peter Jackson accomplished. In terms of the scale, the the, uh, the digital work in the movie, the special effects, the, the production design, it has influenced so many movies, from epic, you know, medieval stories, from, you know, Arthurian stories that we've seen since then, obviously, Game of Thrones. Uh, you know. It's hard to say, you know, I, I would imagine that it could still be made as a movie, it would be in some ways, it would be easier because digital technology has advanced a lot since Peter innovated certain things and um, and refined others.
0: Yes, he'd be knock- knocking himself out even more on the special effects, wouldn't he? Yeah,
1: I think it's possible, and I think just generally, I mean, what you're what you're speaking about is digital platforms as opposed to cinema experience, and. Obviously, it's, it was already happening before the pandemic and it will continue happening as that more and more people will see more and more movies at home in that way. Honestly, I think there will always be a call for, a demand for, for the cinema experience. I do think that there are people, not just me, younger generations, they also enjoy that experience. And I do think that there will always be a home for independent movie making stories in cinemas, it, it might be, you know, it might be more competitive, it might be more difficult to find those those niches for them. But, but I think people will always want that, some people will.
0: But I was thinking at the other end of the spectrum that we're just discussing that sort of big brash epics, fighting for power, transitions of power, innocence caught up between these uncaring, powerful forces. Gosh, I mean, I, you, from Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, there is something, isn't there, about our own times? And I'm sure this is because they are eternal stories or we think Game of Thrones will last a bit. Do you think there's something about the time we're living in that we need this exposure to or even a kind of retreat to the epic form?
1: Maybe, but I think that But you take a story like Falling or any story about any family the story of the family and falling and transpose it. it. It works as a microcosm, as a reflection of society in general. You know, the same conflicts, polarization, problems with communication, anger, violence. All these things can be depicted in a family. I think it's just like you need a change of gear. It's like a diet in terms of the food that you eat. And I think there are people that, I'm one of them. I sometimes mm. like to see an epic, uh, story on a big, big uh, screen that's a big-scale story with you know, hundreds, thousands of people and big world events. But I sometimes like to see an intimate story like Falling and I, have, I can get the mm. same kind of satisfaction in a different way, from a different angle.
0: And it's interesting to me that the idea for this film was so personal to you, and it feels like a film of kind of personal immersion in watching it at the benefit of the cinema, on the small screen you're immediately cast very deep into this family and its troubles and challenges. And I think you had the idea on the flight back from your own mother's funeral. And I wondered to what extent it was inspired by her. I know she had dementia, as has the main character, Willis, in the film. But I may be making too easy a leap there.
1: No, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it is a fictional family, and most of what happens and what is said in the, in the movie is, is an invention. You know, what, what I, what, how it started is, as you say, it was after my mother's funeral. And I just wanted to remember things about her, stories I'd heard, things I remembered experiencing in my childhood and adolescence primarily. And by thinking of her, I started thinking about my father. And what the, the fictional family and the main characters are a father and a son. That notwithstanding, for me, the conscience of the story remains Gwen, the mother figure, the, the wife. She is often the source of dispute, uh, conflicting memories about her, feelings about her that the father and son have, that the father and daughter have. In some of those disputes, you even see her image flash. You even hear her voice sometimes. And, you, and there's times and scenes earlier in the movie Where Willis, at least, the old man, is hearing her voice in his mind, you know, Um, and you're not seeing her Um, as a result of his dementia, but also just how, what he's remembering, what he's feeling. So she's central to it. And uh, yeah.
0: And how much did you think about the portrayal of dementia? Because in the case of Willis, it's an extreme form of his. Personality, which is, is not too easy to start with, <laughs> let's be honest. Uh, and one of the things that I found myself debating uh, last night was whether this side of him that comes out, I mean, he's quite often quite vile you know, to, to his son and to his son's husband. He's homophobic, he's racist, he's misogynist. I mean, he's, he's, you name it, he's got it, right? And to what extent that is a function of the disease and this decline of uh, the frontotemporal dementia, I think, is is particularly, presents like that. And to what extent do there are aspects of our personalities that then simply are thrown into a different balance? It's quite troubling, isn't it?
1: I've had a lot of up-close, intimate, even caregiving experience with with dementia uh, in my family, both my parents, my mother had been ailing from it and when she passed away and my father was already beginning to have it and then he died two years after her, um, You know, quite far down the road with dementia at that point. My stepfather, same thing, my grandparents, three of my four grandparents, aunts, uncles. I mean, I've, I've seen it, been around it a lot, which helped me to um, construct, I suppose, in the writing of it, the character of Willis and also his relationships with his families, in particular with his son, his daughter, and people around them. I, my experience with it is that it's, you can't be sure how someone's going to be. You know? uh, I've had the experience of someone being very gentle and kind and a very easy, one of the most easy people to get along with I could imagine, becoming really difficult and violent and aggressive. With the onset of dementia. I've also seen people uh, uh, go the other way, very strong-willed, very sort of strong personality, become very gentle. So it's hard to say. In general, my experience and everything I've read about it is that you tend to, your character traits tend to just be magnified. They they just become a little more accentuated or a lot more accentuated with the onset of dementia. So that One thing that I found interesting or I wanted to accomplish, and I think we did, was to not depict someone with dementia as just a confused person. Even in the best film or theater portrayals I've seen, and I've tried to see as many as I could, it's often that the person is shown someone who's confused a lot. And when they've tried in some of those stories to show the point of view of the person suffering from dementia, it's a point of view of someone who's confused a lot. And my experience with it is quite different from that. It's, that the, it's the observers. It is us. It is we who are confused, not that person. They are seeing and hearing what they're seeing. They are happy or sad or confused in a normal way like you and I would be by something that they're experiencing and seeing. And if we can say or agree that memory is very subjective and it affects how we deal with people and how we see the world around us at any given time in the present then why is the way they're seeing and feeling, hearing any less valid than yours? And, and it's, it's just something in a caregiving sense. It's something you have to learn to do is to be flexible and try to find a way to make them comfortable as much as you can. And one of the ways to do that is to not correct people. Your tendency, like let's say your mother or your father or your spouse or somebody, it has dementia and they start talking about, you know, having just had lunch with somebody that, you know, died 30 years ago or something. And the tendency is to say, no, 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 dad. Um, he died 35 years ago. And what happens? That person dies for them anew. It's horrible for them. And if they're still in early stages and can come out of it and realize what they've just said, then they feel doubly embarrassed and, and sad. So you have to ask yourself then, why do I have this instinct to correct? Am I really doing it to help them? Or is it because I want them the way they were before?
0: And and as you say, I mean, there is, though it is very harsh to watch, it also has moments of great sort of sweet comic relief. And that reminded me of something I think you said about your mother confusing you being in the film with with Ingrid Bergman. Ah, yeah.
1: She had always been interested in, in movie stories. And in fact, the first time I went to the movies was with her when I was three years old and I didn't think it was unusual at the time, but I realized later it was, my mother took me constantly to the movies. I I remember being four years old and going to the cinema to see Lawrence of Arabia with her. And, you know, I mean, those kinds of movies. And she would talk about the story and what was shown and what wasn't shown. And isn't that interesting. It seemed normal to me. And then I grew up and I realized most moms don't do that. And, um, I I was actually rehearsing a play and I was helping her move across the country, the United States. And, uh, and I was going to settle her in, help her, you know, unpack and do stuff uh, for about a week. And then I was going to take off and then I realized something was wrong and I ended up having to get out of the play. And I stayed with her. And it took me about a year and a half to find the right combination of me taking care of her and um, caregivers and, you know, all that stuff. And, but anyway, so we were, we were watching Funny Girl movie. Barbara Streisand and Omar Sharif were in from the 60s. No oh,
0: excellent choice. <laughs> and,
1: uh, and so we're watching this movie on the television, I think from a DVD. And um, she had a great time. I had a great time watching it. We had seen this movie when I was a kid together. And um, the next morning, very early, it was still dark out. I mean, five in the morning or something. I hear all this noise downstairs and I... Look, and the lights are on. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I go down in the kitchen, and she's put all the leaves of the kitchen table. She's made as an added a table, and she'd put out all her best plates. I mean, I don't know, twenty place settings, and she would found like like stuff she had from my grandmother that she never used. You know, like nice china and silverware and all this stuff, wine glasses, and and she had made this huge. That of scrambled eggs. I guess she'd gone to the all-night store and bought eggs. I don't know what. And, and just a pile of bacon and, and pots of coffee. It was like I inc- go, what's happening? What's going on? And she said, all those people, I mean, they were really partying a lot. They were drinking heavily and they're going to have hangovers and they're going to have a big appetite. You know, so I'm just getting it ready. And I realized, oh, you mean Barbara and Omar and those? Yes, and all their drunken friends, you know. And, and so <laughs> you know, so th- those are things that happen. And
0: but it's a great story. But you know, it's this completely inside her head as, a, as something that needs to happen. Yes. Needs yeah. To
1: and I and she was I was urgent. So fortunately, I didn't at that time. Even though I wasn't quite sure what to do, I didn't say, "Oh, mom, what are you doing? That's crazy." I didn't want to do that. I said, "Well, why don't we? While we're waiting for them to wake up, why don't you and I have some?" scrambled eggs and bacon, and, and a cup of coffee, and, you know, and so we talked for a while, and then eventually she wondered why they were, and, and then she sort of forgot about it, and I said, you know, let's go, let's go for a walk, or let's go sit down, and then she sat down for a while, and she started thinking about something else, and while she was doing that, I put all the stuff away. She forgot about it.
0: And uh, that's that kind of delicacy that happens in the movie when we see the son having to negotiate, even when he must be furious inside, humiliated and made to feel bad. But he's still, I mean, obviously there are, there are dramatic moments, but he, he holds it together. In some sense, it almost seems, and I wonder to what extent you felt it was a sort of, it's a film really about tolerance towards people who don't tolerate you, which is a somewhat 2020 theme, I think, uh, not, not least in America, but also elsewhere around the world.
1: It is isn't. it isn't a theme. Because I have to say, with many, you know, like the Me Too movement and with a new consciousness of all the negative aspects of misogyny, racism, homophobia, all that, there's also a certain intolerance and an unwillingness to, to be tolerant, frankly. Um, there isn't, sometimes one, there is no, it's just black and white. It's just you're either on this side or you're not. There's no in between and there's no... Sometimes there isn't enough communication, I find.
0: Are you suggesting that's the case for for the Me Too movement?
1: I'm saying in general, any cause, sometimes matters are more complex than they appear. Whatever it is, it's good to continue communicating, even with people that are difficult to communicate with. And you're right, in-falling is in large part a story about communication and about what it takes to communicate with someone that you have to be as stubborn about wanting to find some common ground, some point of contact, even though by being as stubborn about trying to communicate as the other person is about not wanting to, there's no guarantee that you'll get there. If you cut that off and you don't communicate, well, I don't agree with you and then we're not talking anymore, whether it's politics or anything else or personal family matters. If you cut it off, then for sure there's not going to be any point of contact, but it's an individual choice. Each person decides how much they're going to put up with before they stop talking to that person.
0: Is that something that was on your own mind? I, I actually read way back in, in your biography, and I think your your first role, although it didn't make it to the screen, sadly, was in Purple Rose of Cairo, which is, of course, a Woody Allen film. <laughs> um, a, a, really a a film, of a very charming sort of film of note, but that has led to a kind of controversy about how much, would you now still feel it's all right to watch a Woody Allen film? Would you feel it was okay to work with Woody Allen?
1: Yes, I do. I think he's, he's a... He's a unique filmmaker. He's made a lot of good movies. And I have no problem watching his
0: movies. Uh, but, of course, there are, you know, in the wake of not least of the Me Too movement, a lot of people say, well, someone perhaps of his attitudes and alleged behaviours, one shouldn't do that. that That's the point, I think, you know, that you were interrogating.
1: Every person can decide for themselves. Um, I don't condone... If, 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 if people can show me definitively, and I can't really say that that's true about him. If somebody can show me definitively, even if they can show me that, that's not, I'm not going to deprive myself from watching his movies if I feel like it. I it doesn't mean I condone, like let's say somebody, it doesn't even have to be Woody Allen, anybody who does something horrible, actor, director, producer, um, but they've made a film or they're in a film that I want to see. If I want to see the movie, I'm going to see the movie.
0: So you do believe you can be morally neutral about that kind of either working in... I'm not
1: talking about being morally neutral about their behavior. I'm talking about the movie. If I want to see the movie, I'll see the movie. My seeing their movie does not condone whatever they have or haven't done in their personal life.
0: Of course, they they do benefit from it, don't they, financially, reputationally?
1: Maybe. Depends how I see the movie.
0: Also oh, true. I must come to um, um, another film that you made, Eastern Promises. It's David Cronenberg's 2007 gangster movie. You got a nomination for the Academy Award for Best Actor for your character Nikolai. The Economist no less complimented you on your spoken Russian and we said at the time it's a rare movie in which an actor successfully masters not only a foreign accent but foreign language dialogue. It obviously doesn't faze you to work in another language at all.
1: It makes me, well any job that I do as an actor I'm always nervous about it. As soon as I've said yes and accepted the challenge I'm I've sort of, I partly regret it. I think, what have I done? How am I going to do this? You know, and uh, now I've really got myself into hot water. I don't know if I'll be able to, to survive in this one. But, but you find a way because you have to. And, um, and there's a reason why you, were, why you were attracted to it in the first place. And you have to sort of go back to that and just get on with the work.
0: Look, I have a horrible feeling the orcs are going to come and get me, Those uh, the messenger orcs that you keep in the background. <laughs> so I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to have to uh, say goodbye. But just when you think back, I mean, is Lord of the Rings something that is always going to resonate throughout your life or just sometimes some days you wake up and think, I want to be remembered for something different. I'm going to do something completely different.
1: Um, I don't really give much thought to it in that regard, uh, one way or the other. I mean... I greatly enjoyed, especially the process of making that movie. Nobody knew it was going to be the global success that it it, it became, which obviously opened many doors for me and everyone else involved, not just the actors, but some of the crew members as well. I would have never been cast by David Cronenberg in the first of the three movies I made with him, A History of Violence. He wouldn't have been allowed to cast me in that role. Uh, had it not been for the success of, of The Lord of the Rings. But, but it was the process of making it that I was, was amazing. It was like a big, wild and woolly film school for a very long period of time where I saw Peter Jackson and his team solve collectively an immense amount of problems, big ones, small ones, every day. I mean, any movie Uh, storytelling experience is about solving problems every day, a series of problems. That's how you get to the end of it. And then you have it and you show it to people. But uh, it was fascinating to watch them even inventing new ways of filming things and uh, overcoming obstacles, filmmaking obstacles every day, logistical problems, camera problems. I mean, it was just, uh, it was extraordinary. And this was with a crew largely made up of New Zealanders who had had not no experience with a movie of that scale and in many cases not much experience at all in movie making but in a way he he established something completely new in that country Um, he pioneered a new way of, of 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 telling stories in the movies which was has been imitated sometimes well, sometimes not very well, by many other people around the world since.
0: The Orcs have definitely come to tell us that time's up. Uh, Vigo Mortensen, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for your time.
0: Well, do you have experience of caring for someone with dementia you'd like to tell us about? And maybe that story of the lavish breakfast that Viggo Mortensen's mum prepared stirred a memory or two in you. And of course, we'd love to know what you think of the subject as a whole. And what do you reckon of Viggo Mortensen's idea that it's okay to still watch films by someone who's been the subject of Me Too controversy? In this case, Woody Allen. Are you with him? Are you not? Either way... We'd love to hear your views. And for your best introductory offer, including to our great arts and books coverage, do go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. I'm Anne Kelvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.